There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.5, Vicky, meet the Hohenzollerns. Last week, we went through Vicky's special day and her quote-unquote welcome into the Prussian court. Today, we will go through some of the biggest moments in her early marriage, culminating in the death of her father, Albert, in 1861. But before we get going, I just want to give my usual thanks to my patrons on Patreon. They have been so key to this show's success and my longevity in this business, and I cannot thank them enough. If you too would like to support the show, then please head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Vicky had grown up into a warm and loving family, to two parents that adored each other, and in an environment where she was seen as, if not an equal to her brothers, then certainly close to being so. Therefore, it was quite the culture shock when she joined the Hohenzollern dynasty. They were a cold bunch, in many ways the embodiment of the stereotypical Victorian family, and held extremely traditional moral values. They ruled a kingdom that was built from the bottom up to be in the service of the military, and it has been argued that these martial values were reflected in the organisation of its society and in family structures. Now, we've already introduced a few of the key players in the Prussian court in this series, but A, it's been a while, and B, there's more of them to do. So, let's do it now. Don't worry if you don't remember them all, though, as they will be turning up a lot. At the top, of course, was her uncle-in-law, King Friedrich Wilhelm IV, he had three brothers, Wilhelm, Fritz's father, as well as Charles and Albrecht. To give you a basic idea of what these men were like, 
Here's a quote from the king himself. Quote, If we four had been born the sons of a petty official, I would have become an architect, Wilhelm a sergeant major, Charles would have gone to prison, and Albrecht would have been a ne'er-do-well. Now, the king doesn't actually come into our story all that much, so let's move on to his brothers. Prince Wilhelm was the embodiment of the Prussian military man. He had been brought up in the army, and had served with distinction as a teenager during the latter years of the Napoleonic Wars, winning the Iron Cross in battle in 1814. He had not grown up expecting to be a future king, as he had an elder brother, Friedrich Wilhelm, but his marriage was childless, meaning that Wilhelm became the heir apparent. Wilhelm remained in the army following the Congress of Vienna, and became its main champion at the Prussian court, ensuring that its needs were always at the forefront of his brother's mind. In the 1820s, he embarked on a scandalous love affair with his cousin Eliza, who was looked down on by his family as her father was a Pole, and therefore not proper royalty. Moreover, the Poles were the fervent enemies of Russia, meaning that this dalliance took on a distinct geopolitical flavour. Torn between the interests of his son and those of his Russian allies, Wilhelm's father eventually instructed him to end the nine-year-long affair, in favour of a woman 14 years his junior, Augusta of Saxe-Weimar. She was an intelligent and independent-minded woman who had very little in common with her new husband, who still pined for his former lover, a passion that seemingly only grew stronger when Eliza died of TB at the age of just 30. After doing her duty and giving birth to two children, Fritz and Louise, Augusta informed her husband that their conjugal life was over, and focused instead on trying to change her conservative-minded husband into a liberal, a thankless task that only served to make their marriage all the more loveless. Yet one man whom they both were united in hating was Prince Charles, Wilhelm's younger brother. He was an ultra-conservative, who had attempted to usurp his two older brothers during the 1848 revolution. Rude and determined to insult, he hated Augusta and Vicky the most, and was their fervent enemy at court. He had a number of children, one of whom, Fritz Karl, was an absolute piece of work. But he had a charming wife named Marianne, who became a close friend of Vicky's. I will add to this collection of characters as we go along, but keep these guys in mind as they will be important. As you can tell from the descriptions that I just gave you, this was not a harmonious family. But something that united them all was the fact that they were all proud Prussians. Any new entrant into the family had to buy into the fact that, wherever they had been born, they were now Prussians of the house of Hohenzollern. The problem that Vicky had was that even if she had wanted to integrate fully into the family, she was prevented from doing so by her meddling parents, who well and truly set her up for failure. Her father Albert, for example, insisted that she keep her title of Princess Royal, which caused resentment in a corps that was still profoundly anti-British and pro-Russian. Albert wrote weekly, offering various pieces of advice and encouragement to Vicky and to Wilhelm, but all of it was on the theme of Vicky's special mission. Victoria was more concerned with Vicky's personal life, and she wrote almost every other day. Indeed, she insisted that Vicky number her letters so that she could more easily catalogue them. She seemed torn between zealous overparenting and having a daughter as a confidant now that she had entered adulthood and had flown the coop. Letters abounded with demands for information about every aspect of her life, from her daily schedule, her exercise, her feelings for Fritz, 
her food, her drink, her hobbies. Did she still draw? Did she go to the theatre? What were her in-laws like? Did she treat them with respect? Did they like her? Even her menstrual periods were the subject of frequent inquiry. When she didn't get the answer that she wanted, she badgered Vicky's ladies, who were often sworn to secrecy by Vicky whenever she was about to confide in them something juicy, lest they turn up in a letter to her mother. This was the environment in which Vicky had to operate. Her two families were pulling her in opposite directions, both emotionally and politically, and she had to somehow plot a straight course. An older and more practical woman in her position might have tried to throw off her parents' shackles and spend more time ingratiating herself with her new relatives. But that never seemed to be an option for Vicky. She was forever destined to be torn between her two nations. Throughout, of course, she had the loving support of her beloved husband, and her love for him only seemed to be growing. She wrote to her mother, quote, I feel happier from day to day. In fact, I never knew before what it was to be so happy. I feel proud when I go out walking alone with Fritz, and when I look at his dear face and think that I belong to him, and that he is my husband, that I have a right to be more to him than anyone else. While together, the two were often seen walking with each other, and this was something that was very unusual in the Prussian court, as couples there seemingly couldn't stand each other for long enough to go for a nice walk. But sadly, her time with Fritz was limited by his military duties and her busy social calendar, and the intellectual diversions demanded of her by her father. On a typical day, they would rise at eight, read and have breakfast together, He would tend to his military duties while she studied, wrote letters and met with senior members of her household. In the late afternoon, she and Fritz would often study together again, but all too soon it would be social time, which would require her to get glammed up and then go to various boring long formal dinners and then maybe go to the theatre. Prussian social schedules were designed for women who did not carve out any time in their lives for intellectual pursuits, so Vicky was constantly exhausted by her attempts to fit it all in. She wrote to her mother, quote, I quite agree to what you say about my going out and taking more exercise, but here in Berlin it is perfectly impossible. I am always out two hours, dinner is always at five, consequently one has to dress at half after four. After dinner one goes to the theatre. I do not always because I'm usually so tired that I nearly fall asleep. After the play we have to go to the prince and princess. If I did not secure the morning to myself, I should pass my whole time doing nothing at all. No one who has not been here can understand the busy idleness that goes on. Her intellectual and political concerns were not just taxing on Vicky's time, though. They also got her into trouble with her in-laws, who were unused to women expressing their views on such matters, and unwilling for them to start doing so. Once, she was overheard talking to her friend Marianne about the deplorable living conditions of the working classes in Berlin and how something ought to be done about it. When reports of that conversation leaked, Vicky was told, in no uncertain terms, that she had no right to talk about Prussia in that way. She wasn't in Britain anymore, she was in Prussia now, and should act like a Prussian lady, i.e. get down, shut up, and do what your husband tells you. Last time, I described the absolutely grim Berlin Palace, the first place of residence for Vicky in Prussia. Well, a few months after moving to Prussia, she and Fritz moved along with the rest of the Prussian court out of Berlin to the Prussian Versailles at Potsdam. They stayed at Fritz's family's summer palace at Babelsberg. Sadly, this wasn't much more inviting than the Berlin Palace. 
more ugly furniture and more uninspiring interiors. It was at least in better condition and in prettier surroundings though, and closer to Fritz's military camp, meaning that she saw more of him. A few months later, her father Albert came over to visit Vicky at Babelsberg, as part of a visit to see the Prussian king. Vicky was not able to come with him to see the king, as she had hurt her ankle after tripping on the stairs, but she did manage to spend a couple of happy days with him. He wrote back to Victoria, quote, Relations between the young people is all that can be desired. I have had long talks with them both, which gave me the greatest satisfaction. Vicky is sensible and good. It turned out to be particularly opportune timing for him, as Vicky had just discovered that she was pregnant. Albert was absolutely thrilled and implored Vicky not to take any risks in this pregnancy, especially in the light of her recent fall. Quote, It is not only a question of a nascent human life, but of your health and of your mutual future domestic happiness, of the founding of your family and the future of your country and people, and thereby, one might almost say, the welfare of Europe. In comparison with the importance of all this, all other considerations, desires, predilections, must be suppressed. So, you know, no pressure then. Characteristically, where Albert was grandiose and only focused on the big picture, Victoria was a rather tactless and meddling warrior. She called it, quote, horrid news that upset us dreadfully. Her own nine childbirths had taken a terrible toll on her body, and she seems to have only remembered the pains of motherhood rather than the joys. In a letter to Fritz, she wrote, quote, That what fills you with joy brings me sorrow and anxiety, for it is bound up with so much suffering and danger for the poor and very young mother. You men are far too selfish. You only have the advantages in such a case, whereas we poor women have to bear all the pain and suffering. Vicky wrote back to her, expressing her joy at the news and her pride at being an expectant mother. Quote, What you say of pride of giving birth to an immortal soul is very fine, dear, replied Victoria, but I think much more of our being like a cow or dog in such moments, where our poor nature becomes so very animal and unecstatic. It did not help that Vicky suffered from severe morning sickness, dizziness, headaches and swelling of the feet during her pregnancy, and complained of such ailments to her mother, which only worried her more. Quote, I hope Fritz is duly shocked at your sufferings, for those very selfish men would not bear a minute what we poor slaves have to endure. I think I can hear the mothers amongst you all nodding along at that. In August that year, Victoria visited her daughter, along with Albert and the family doctor. She had already sent her midwife ahead, and so built a little British cocoon for her daughter at Babelsberg. While in Prussia, Victoria and Albert did what parents did best, and that is, embarrass the ever-loving hell out of her daughter. Yet, in this case, the consequences were rather more serious than just a few cringy moments at dinner. They couldn't help but be a beacon for their liberal ideas, and gathered like-minded people around them. This further damaged Vicky politically, at a time when she should have been gaining support, as she was, after all, doing her womanly duty by giving birth, potentially, to a future king of Prussia. For example, at this time, the Prussian Prime Minister, an arch-conservative, was forced to resign by Wilhelm, who was acting as Prince Regent for his ailing brother, in favour of a liberal candidate, who was a favourite of Victoria and Albert. 
the delighted Prince Consort saw this as a sign that his plan was working and overloaded Vicky's father-in-law with letters of unsolicited advice, most of which was discarded unopened. Vicky didn't help herself here, expressing her delight publicly, further raising the ire of the Conservatives. The one positive legacy of their trip, though, was their recommendation to Vicky and Fritz that they should move their summer residence from Babelsberg to apartments in the magnificent new palace. Though she would spend many years making their house their habitable, Vicky delighted in this restoration project, and this would become their happiest home in Prussia. Vicky's health didn't much improve through her pregnancy, but her male doctors were not much concerned about the 18-year-old princess. Both the Prussian and English doctors concluded there was nothing to worry about. Only the midwife, Mrs Innocent, expressed concern, warning that she was, quote, in for trouble. Victoria was also not able to come, as she was due to open Parliament around Vicky's due date. She did, however, send a bottle of chloroform to be used as a painkiller. Victoria had pioneered the use of chloroform during childbirth, and in so doing, did a great service to women, as suffering pain during childbirth had before been seen, in the words of Elizabeth Longford, as, quote, woman's divinely appointed destiny. Now, the story of the birth of Vicky's first child is one of enormous importance, and is thus passed into legend. No entirely reliable source exists, as even the doctor's reports have to be called into question due to how badly everything is about to go down. Her appointed chief physician for the birth was Dr. Eduard Martin of the University of Berlin. But when Vicky went into labour just before midnight on the 26th of January 1859, he wasn't about. A note was written to Dr. Martin, but the servant to whom it was entrusted just popped it in a mailbox rather than delivering it personally, meaning that the note didn't reach him until mid-morning the next day. When he arrived around 10.30am, he was greeted by a scene from a horror film. Vicky was semi-conscious, in utter agony, a handkerchief being placed in her mouth to prevent her from grinding her teeth to dust and biting her tongue off. Fritz was holding her in his arms, powerless to do anything but vainly attempt to comfort his wife, who appeared to be dying along with her baby, who was still in utero. Her doctors had given up and were huddled in the corner, apparently preferring to let her die unassisted rather than risking trying to help her. They had already told the princess that she was about to die. Obituary notices for them both had already been sent to the newspapers. She had been in agonising labour for over nine hours, and, after begging for help and forgiveness from those around her, now exhaustedly awaited her fate. Dr Martin, it seems, had arrived in the nick of time. He examined Vicky and determined that the child was breached. It seems that the other doctors had been too timid to examine Vicky's royal nether regions and had not discovered this. She was in spasmodic labour, meaning that all the pushing and pain thus far had been entirely fruitless. These days, a caesarean section would be performed, but such a thing was not available at the time as it almost always resulted in the death of the mother. She was, at last, administered chloroform to help with the pain, and then Dr Martin got to work. With great difficulty and the use of no small amount of force, the physician finally delivered a baby boy four hours later. The child made no sound when it entered the world. Not enough oxygen was getting to his brain for a good ten minutes before Dr Martin finally managed to get him breathing. 
This is a long time for someone to be without sufficient oxygen, and can lead to small, yet permanent, brain damage. This was not the only long-term effect that the boy suffered due to his traumatic birth. His left arm was limp and useless by his side, the result of nerve damage not uncommon in breech births. Vicky would always blame herself for this. Her mind would frequently travel back to her fallback at Babelsberg. Maybe that had caused all this. Lack of knowledge of the natal process was rampant at the time, and Vicky knew less than most, as Victoria had not considered it proper to adequately prepare her daughter on this topic. The extent of the damage and the trauma of the birth was not shared with the Prussian public, who joyously celebrated the birth of the prince, whom was named Friedrich Wilhelm Victor Albert, but was primarily referred to as Wilhelm, due to, in Vicky's words, quote, lessen the confusion which is liable with the legion of Fritzes. Her in-laws were characteristically tactless. Her father-in-law Wilhelm told Fritz that he wasn't sure that he should be congratulating him and Vicky on the birth of a, quote, defective prince. Augusta wasn't much better, constantly saying that he was too small, which the similarly diminutive Vicky took as a double insult. Vicky and Fritz, though, could not be happier with their son, delighted that he was even alive. Vicky told her mother, quote, I am so thankful, so happy that he is a boy. I long for one more than I can describe. He really is a dear child. He is so intelligent and lovely and cries so little. Yet the one thing over which she was fixated was his arm. She had feared to tell her parents about it for the first few months, but afterwards she detailed every aspect of it in her letters back home. She well knew that in such a martial society, such a thing was considered a mark of weakness and would affect his chances of succeeding in life. Therefore, every single doctor that could be found was consulted and a myriad of treatments were considered and attempted from the simple to the bizarre. They included tying his good arm to his side for an hour every day to try and get him to use the damaged one, cold compresses, spraying him with seawater and rubbing with various lotions. These seem relatively harmless, but then they also tried something called animalistic baths, which, and do brace yourself, involved plunging his arm inside the body of a freshly killed hare. Apparently, this would somehow transfer the animal's vigour into him. Shockingly, it didn't work. Over time, Wilhelm would gain some function in his arm, but he still had some signs of deformity. His right shoulder was prone to droop, and he didn't walk until he was 16 months old. Then, at the age of four, his head began to tilt to the right, inhibiting his ability to turn it. More extreme measures were sought now. He was subjected to repeated electric shocks in a vain attempt to stimulate movement, but to no effect. Then, his doctors recommended that he be strapped into a steel machine that would force his head to look straight. Quote, I cannot tell you what I suffered when I saw him in that machine, Vicky wrote to her mother. It was all I could do to prevent myself from crying. To see one's child treated like one deformed. It really is very hard. The machine consists of a belt wrapped around the waist to which is affixed an iron bard or rod, which passes up the back, to which a thing looking very much like the bridle of a horse is attached. The head is strapped to this and then turned as required with a screw. Wilhelm is very good about this as it does not hurt him, but I fear in a few more times it will. It seems so cruel to torment the poor child. 
Still, it would be no kindness to save him inconvenience now, at the expense of causing him much greater hereafter. It is quite easy to blame Vicky for allowing her son to be put through all of this, but she and her husband were only trying to do what was best for him. She loved her son, and his disability only intensified the bond they shared. Her mother had warned her against getting overly affectionate with the first child, as it would only spoil him, but Vicky couldn't help it. As it turned out, her mother's advice, cold as it was, was pretty prophetic. Meanwhile, things weren't going so well between Fritz and his father. The Prince Regent had pushed through a new army reform bill without having consulted him. Seeing this as a grave insult, he confronted his father, who countered, calling his son a rank amateur. Combined with worries over his son, his own poor health, and a humiliating abortive campaign in Italy, Fritz dissolved into a depressive funk. The battle over the army reforms continued for months, with the Conservatives rallying behind the Prince Regent, and the Liberals, who remember controlled the ministry, behind Fritz. Things came to a head when the Liberals presented a plan to Fritz to overthrow his father and instead install him as regent. Shocked, he took this to his father, but instead of thanking his son for his loyalty, he accused him of treason. Things were not well in the house of Hohenzollern at the dawn of the 1860s. Things were not much better for Vicky, as, during a visit home in the summer, she had found her father looking overworked, ill and drawn. When he visited the following year, he suffered a minor coach accident that seems to have provoked somewhat of a crisis of mortality. This was compounded by the fact that the Prussian court had become lousy with Russians. The Hohenzollerns were tightly intermarried with the Romanov ruling dynasty in Russia, and much of the clan tended to summer in Prussia. With her husband busy and her mother-in-law occupied with the poor health of her own mother, Vicky had to take on much of the hosting responsibilities. She was busy dawn to dusk with the Russians, most of whom hated her, remember, and would retire to bed long after midnight every day, resentfully complaining of headaches and swollen feet. In the midst of all this, Vicky fell pregnant again. Luckily for everyone, though, this was a lot less eventful, and resulted in the birth of a daughter in July 1860. The only particularly difficult thing about this one was those blasted Russians, who, even with Vicky being heavily pregnant, still ran her off her feet. The sheer number of them meant that the palace was filled to bursting, meaning that everything from the furnishings to the furniture was completely trashed by the time they finally departed. They didn't even have the decency to be nice to her. The enmity caused by the Crimean War ran deep. The daughter, when she was born, was named Victoria, after her mother, Elizabeth, after the Prussian Queen, Augusta, for her mother-in-law, and Charlotte, for Fritz's aunt, the Dowager Empress of Russia. They mostly, though, just called her Charlotte. You'd think that this was a very diplomatic name, seeing as it referred to basically all their major relatives. But no, just like most compromises, it pleased precisely no one. Her mother was rather irked that the child would not be generally referred to as Victoria, as that name had been in the family for three generations. Queen Elizabeth, though, was apparently livid, and let Vicky know about it. In a letter back to her mother, Vicky wrote, quote, The Queen was so much displeased at the name that it made her still more cross and ungracious the two times she has been to see me. I just wish you could have heard the exclamations of all my relations when they have come to see me. 
heard all the senseless remarks and seen the upturned eyes and shrugging of shoulders at everything I did and had on. They weren't satisfied with anything. She really could do nothing right by them, could she? To them, she would always be the English liberal aristocrat, coming to upset the Russo-Prussian alliance and turn the proud country they loved into a British lackey. She was the embodiment of all this tension in Prussian society, and she would suffer for it. But she would win over at least one of her hostile relations. The Prussian king, who had been incapacitated for a long time, took a final turn for the worse as 1860 drew to a close. He had to be tied to a chair to prevent him from falling, and was unable to speak or direct his gaze at anyone. He died on the 2nd of January 1861, with his close family, including Vicky, at his bedside. While everyone around was fussing over the dead king and over what was to be done next, Vicky sat with the now dowager Queen Elizabeth, the one who had been so awful to her over the naming of Charlotte. Elizabeth was touched by her care and concern, and from then on undertook to be far kinder to her. Indeed, when she died 12 years later, she broke with tradition and left all her jewels to her, and not to Queen Augusta. Meanwhile, back in Britain, things were happier. Vicky's siblings were growing up fast, and many of them now needed spouses. The House of Hanover had always preferred to marry German, and so Vicky was tapped to act as a sort of marriage agent for her brothers and sisters, as she was best able to meet and vet all the available candidates. Her first task was to marry off her sister Alice and brother Bertie, the Prince of Wales. Now we'll talk more about Alice's marriage in a future episode, but suffice it to say that Vicky managed to find a nice German prince named Louis of Hesse for her to marry. Delighted, not just by her success, but also the fact that she now had a relative in close proximity, she launched herself into the task of finding Bertie a wife. This was a very important task, as this was a woman who would eventually become a Queen of the United Kingdom, and one that Vicky took very seriously. After much time visiting castles and conversing at court, she found her woman. One of her former ladies had married a British diplomat who was posted to Copenhagen, who told her that a Danish princess named Alexandra would be the perfect wife for Bertie. Beautiful, virtuous and utterly charming, she would be the ideal woman to match with the wild and caddish Prince of Wales. Maybe she could be the person to sort him out and make a future king of him. This put Vicky in a bit of a bind, as Prussia and Denmark were not the best of friends, thanks to a territory dispute over Schleswig-Holstein, the details of which I won't trouble you with. There were plenty of available Germans who would have been adequate choices, but Vicky wanted the best for her brother, and so made the difficult decision to throw her support behind Alexandra. This made her even less popular at the Prussian court, but it's hard to see a world in which Vicky would not make this choice. It was what made her the perfect daughter, but a rather imperfect daughter-in-law. We'll be talking more about this marriage in a later episode. In October of 1861, Vicky took part in her father-in-law's coronation. This, of course, made her the Crown Princess of Prussia, marking a slight increase in station for her. Everyone was now fully aware that she was now just one nasty illness, one assassin's bullet, away from being Queen Consort of Prussia. The whole thing was a whirlwind of colour and pageantry. But one thing stood out. During his coronation speech, the new King Wilhelm emphasised that, quote, the crown comes from God alone. This was a signal, 
if everyone hadn't worked it out already, that Albert and Fritz's attempts to turn Wilhelm into a modern liberal monarch had failed. He didn't subscribe to the liberal belief that power is derived from the consent of the governed. No, he thought it came solely from God. Given that he had been, for all intents and purposes, king for quite some time already, one would have thought that very little would have changed after Wilhelm took the throne. But it seems that the rivalries within the Hohenzollern family only became more vicious. An example of this came while the family was visiting the body of a dead king. Fritz's aunt, Alexandrine, who was at the conservative end of the family, saw that Vicky was struggling to pay homage to the decomposing corpse, and so she helped her out by shoving her face down onto his deathbed and not letting go for some time. What a family. The new regime was set to turn even further from liberal ideas, with Queen Augusta and Fritz finding themselves sidelined from the action. The Conservatives restricted Vicky's ability to come home to the UK to visit her family, fearing that she may become further contaminated by British liberalism and spread the disease back in Prussia. The new king also refused to increase Fritz's allowance, hamstringing him in his attempts to carve out his own path as the Crown Prince of Prussia. Albert thought this was also an attack on his daughter. Quote, it is obvious to me that a certain party is opposed to the practical financial independence of the Prussians, he wrote to von Stockmar. She does not get one penny from Prussia, which is shabby enough, and gives away the whole of her dowry, which she is not obliged to do. If the poor crown prince is refused things because he has a rich wife, then this is a plan to impoverish her. What is curious is that the one woman whom one would think would be her great ally, the fellow liberal-minded Queen Augusta, seems to have disliked her. She had always been a very social woman, and resented the fact that Vicky's illness and studies sometimes kept her from being constantly at her side. Vicky complained to her mother that, quote, Morning, noon and night, she expects me to be at her beck and call. It ends in my being a sort of a slave. Two winters ago, I resisted, and the consequence was that I was not in favour. The respect due to the king and queen demands that wherever they appear, I should appear too. The queen has no pity. Nothing makes her so angry or impatient as when anybody is unwell. It has been suggested that this was done out of jealousy. Augusta was the wife of an old king, one who would not likely rule for long, while Vicky's husband was young and likely to be on the throne for decades. She wanted to take maximum advantage of being queen for as long as she could. And if that meant sidelining Vicky, well then, so much the better. The disappointment of the new regime, though, was probably most clearly felt by Prince Albert back in Britain. He had been sending unsolicited advice to Wilhelm for years, advice that the Prussian almost always completely ignored. Now that he was king, these letters became even more bitterly resented, and Wilhelm frequently took his frustrations out on poor Vicky. Albert's grand plan seemed further than ever from coming into fruition. He wanted Wilhelm to not only adhere to the Prussian constitution, but to celebrate it and make it stronger. He urged him to take up his rightful position as the moral and spiritual leader of Germany. Unification should, according to Albert, quote, not happen by adoption of hasty policies or by making outrageous claims, 
but by the adoption of a bold, confident, truly German and completely liberal policy that corresponds to the needs of our time and the needs of the German nation. But Wilhelm wasn't the man that Albert thought he was or needed him to be. Though racked by illness and exhaustion, Albert continued his frantic work, urgently trying to make his German dream come true, as well as other issues such as the sexcapades and marriage prospects of his son Bertie. Always a workaholic, all of this stress and insomnia only hastened his end. In November of 1861, he caught a cold and fever. He wrote to Vicky, quote, I am at a very low ebb. Much worry and great sorrow have robbed me of sleep during the last fortnight. Vicky begged her in-laws to let her visit her ailing father, but she was refused. Knowing that she could do nothing from Berlin, Victoria played down Albert's illness in her letters. She told her not to be alarmed that his condition was improving. But this was not the case. On the 14th of December 1861, the 42-year-old Prince Consort breathed his last. The next morning, an urgent telegram arrived in Berlin, bearing the ill tidings. Why has the earth not swallowed me up? Vicky despaired to her mother. To be separated from you at this moment is a torture which I cannot describe. He was too great, too perfect for earth, that adored father, whom I ever worshipped with more than a daughter's affection. The death of a father is always hard to endure, especially for someone so young as the 21-year-old Vicky. But, as she said in her letter to her mother, Albert was more than just a father to her. He was a rock in an unsteady world, a constant source of encouragement and strength. No one got her like he did. He had been her guide, her teacher, her mentor. But, more than all of that, he was the shining searchlight guiding Vicky to her destiny. She was left shouldering the burden of his great plan. She was now cut adrift in her special mission, deprived of his guidance and counsel. Seeing how distraught she was, her Prussian relatives rallied around her, finally showing her the compassion and empathy that she had bestowed upon them and frankly deserved. No, I'm just kidding. They were awful. The conservatives who ruled the Prussian court were delighted to see this spiritual leader of liberal values dead, this voice of moderation silenced. They went through the motions of offering her their sympathies and respects, but she was no idiot. She knew how happy they were. But the bitterest pill was yet to be swallowed. At this time, Vicky was in the early stages of her third pregnancy, and the doctor forbade her from travelling back to England to comfort her mother or attend her father's funeral. Fritz had to go in her stead. Still, the two exchanged a stream of heart-rendering letters that would turn a heart of stone into mush. On the day of Albert's funeral, Vicky sent this to her mother. Quote, This day has so completely annihilated me. I feel so bowed down by the weight of sorrow which seemed to me more awful even than before. I sit with all dear darling blessed papa's photographs on my knees, devouring them with my eyes, kissing them and feeling as if my heart would break. Dear mamma, how I wish I could be near you on this terrible day. How cut off I feel so far away out here. Fritz writes to me so overwhelmed with your kindness. He says that you are so brave, so courageous. He loved Papa as his own father, admired him as he does no one else. Any kindness of yours is not thrown away 
on that best and kindest of hearts. It would not be for another three months that Vicky was finally granted permission to go visit her mother. There, she met a broken woman, one totally beset by sorrow, forcing Vicky to closet away her own grief to become a consoler. The death of her father meant that she now had to fully graduate into a new role. But she didn't feel ready, and in truth, she wasn't. She would spend the rest of her life trying to live up to her father's legacy, but she was not equipped to carry out what was, in all likelihood, an impossible task. She wrote to her mother that, quote, All the efforts that I made for doing my duty here were made in the hopes of pleasing Papa. I did not care what I went through because I knew Papa would be satisfied. I am but beginning life, and the unerring judgment on which I built with so much security and so much confidence for now and for the future is gone. Where shall I look to for advice? I am only 21, and things here wear a threatening aspect. Vicky had big problems of her own, and these would only get greater, and now she had no guide, no mentor. In death, Albert became beatified as a messianic figure by both Vicky and Albert, as they both sought to live up to his example and further his goals and legacy. Shortly after his death, she wrote this to her mother, quote, Let us take up his glorious task of being good and doing good. I will try to follow his example, to fulfil his every wish, to be to you all I possibly can, to banish and overcome every wrong feeling, and to live both for others as he did. He wished it, he expected it. May his blessing now from above rest on my endeavours. This is language that usually people only reserve for prophets and deities. And while she had placed her father on an almost impossibly high pedestal, it is hard to emphasise enough just what a blow Albert's death was for her. He may not have been perfect. Indeed, I've had some words of criticism for him on this podcast. For all of his vision, he had failed to realise just what danger he was placing his daughter in, how offensive she was bound to be to Prussians if she interfered in their government as he wanted. This was his great misjudgment, and now in death his ideas could not evolve or adapt. They were stuck like a broken record, with Vicky bound by duty to follow his dreams. Albert had been, in every sense, a vital figure in her life, and now he was gone. And it is on that sad note that I will end this week's episode. Next time, we'll see how Vicky coped in her first major political crisis without her father, and with the rise of the greatest statesman of the late 19th century, her implacable enemy, Otto von Bismarck. This is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher 
because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. On Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.